I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to continue our series that we're going through, the Messiah's mission. You know, when, when I was growing up, I loved Christmas. You know, we would go to the park. There, was, there were two parks. We called one the South Park, one the North Park. We went to the South Park a lot, baseball fields. You know, we just, we had so much fun there. But a, a Christmas tree selling company would come in, and we would go down there, and we would pick out our Christmas tree, okay? That's when Christmas trees were under $100. Um, well, some of them are still under $100. As a matter of fact, they were probably like under $10. But we had a great time, and we'd pick out our Christmas tree. We'd get involved in snowball fights. Um, and, and then we would, we would constantly be looking forward to Christmas morning in which we would open the presents. And wow, it, I remember Christmas, so many Christmas mornings. See, there were six children in my home, okay? Six children. And there were so many gifts under that Christmas tree. I, I just thought we must have robbed Santa's sleigh last night. My parents did. I don't know. But we, we, we walked away with a deal. So I would go under the Christmas tree, and I would crawl behind the Christmas tree because I was such a tiny guy. And I could crawl. I could crawl in a space about that big, and I would crawl between presents, and I would be looking for my presents. And sometimes the biggest presents were in the very back of the tree. So I had a great time. And I would find my present, and I would shake it if it was small enough for me to shake. And I, we would just have a great time. My grandparents would come over. We'd open more Christmas presents. And then we would sit down at a Christmas meal that was absolutely huge, and we had a great time. But you know something, that even though we, my, my dad would read the Christmas story to us every Christmas morning, there was just something about the Christmas season that was missed. And what was really missed, when I became a Christian at age 14, and I, honestly, I grew up in a Christian home, but... Christmas was about Santa, it was about gifts, and it was about, was my gift bigger than yours or more expensive, and, you know, and we were missing something. And when my wife and I started our home, and, you know, we had kids, we realized, hey, it can't be that much about kids. We would spend as much as $50 on a gift for our kids, and they would play with the stinking box the whole Christmas day, right? I mean, come on. Or climb into the, the, uh, the, we had a big, we'd have a big black bag of uh, wrapping paper. They'd climb into there and play with the wrapping paper. But we just realized Christmas is so much more than just the gifts. And so when we look at this passage this morning in Isaiah 9, we're going to look at a very familiar verse. And we looked at it a little bit last week. But Hallmark and Dayspring and all those cards out there that sell tons and tons of Christmas cards, you're going to find on at least one of them, if not many of them, this scripture passage, and it's verse 6. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us, or unto us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And we, we, we read through this, and it says, Prince of Peace, yes. How many of you just get so busy between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Yeah, peace is what you're really looking for. And what you mean by peace is tranquility, calm. You know, after the kids open the gifts in the morning, just a, maybe a nap. Maybe, maybe passing out some Benadryl to the little one. You know, so I don't know, just peace. In the, no, I didn't say that, did I? I didn't say that. 
the truth is we just want peace and quiet, some silence. But can I just say to you that as, as popular as peace is and just tranquility of our heart, that is not the type of peace that Isaiah is talking about here. Jesus being the prince of peace and of the increase of his government and peace, it says later there will be no end. Jesus is talking about a different type of peace. And we looked at that last week. The type of peace that we discover is a type of peace that is immersed in battle and war. You know, when David was king, he realized for his borders of Israel to be secure, he had to stop all of the surrounding nations from attacking them. And so he conquered them to do what? To bring peace to his land. And he was a gracious king, even to those kings surrounding him, those nations surrounding him, but he had to conquer them to bring peace. What type of peace are you looking for? Because the type of peace that we're talking about last week and this week is the type of peace that makes peace with God so that you can even have peace in your heart. As we looked at this in the very beginning of Isaiah 9, we realized that Matthew 4, chapter 4, quotes from this passage, and it says, He humbled the land of Naphtali and the land of, excuse me, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, verse 1. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. See, Galilee of the Gentiles, that's where Jesus established his ministry. That's where he went around healing the sick, even raising the dead, preaching the gospel that people should repent for the kingdom of God was at hand. And so when he came preaching... Matthew says that is in fulfillment of this verse here written 700 years earlier. Isaiah wrote about 700, actually to be exact, about 734 years before Christ was born. This passage was written. And so Jesus then was the one who brought the great light that verse 2 talks about into the darkness. So we know right away that Isaiah is not speaking literally about literal darkness or literal light. He's speaking about figurative darkness and figurative light. He's talking about the truth of the gospel. He's talking about the power of God displayed amongst the people that would heal the blinded eyes, that would open them, and not just literally, but open blinded eyes to the truth spiritually when i was 14 years of old 14 years of age god did exactly that in my life and he opened my eye i, I was I, I was born and raised in a christian home church i went to church every sunday except of course the days i played sick and then my mom would stay home with me and still read the bible to me so it didn't work but you know i, I did everything i could to get out of it but i was born and raised in a christian home i went to church and it wasn't until i was 14 that i my eyes were open and I realized what the truth of the gospel really was, a relationship with Jesus Christ, with the Son that was to be born unto us. And so we know right away that this passage is speaking with imagery, darkness, light. And then he gets into this idea of plunder and harvest that hearken to this idea of Satan's kingdom being plundered 
And when the strong man's house, when the strong man is bound, we are told Jesus says in, in Matthew 12, he says, and then his, pl- then his house is plundered. His, that is, his kingdom is plundered. And who is the plunder or what is the plunder? See, church, it was you and me. Christ came in and he plundered Satan's dominion and he rescued you. He pulled you and me out of the darkness into his light. This is what Isaiah is talking about. This is what Matthew is talking about when he even quotes this passage. Church, this actually is what Hallmark and Dayspring and any Christmas card that you read that quotes this passage is really talking about. This battle, this spiritual battle that this child was born into to come and rescue us from Satan's dominion and pull us out of that into the kingdom, the dominion of the Son of God. And so we learned that this includes a battle. He says the yoke that burdens them, it's shattered. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood. This speaks of battle, of war will be destined for the burning, will be fuel for the fire. And we realized that after this battle in which Mike Curtis was killed on the battlefield, as Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Praise God, I lost in that battle. And God won by winning my heart. And I hope that he won your heart. And if he hasn't won your heart yet, my friend, listen up. Because there's so much. As we get into this passage, there's so much that this son does. But how does he then win this battle for us? Now follow me as I begin reading. I'm going to read verses 6 all the way through verse 7. 6 and 7. It says this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on, And forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Can I just say, as this was prophesied over 700 years before this child was actually born in Bethlehem, can I just say that Isaiah tells us that this prophecy of the coming Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, it will happen Everything that he is destined to accomplish, it will take place. Why? Because the zeal of the Lord will accomplish it. That's what Isaiah tells us at the very end. So as we're going through this, we're going to realize God did something absolutely amazing through his son Jesus. And it all started that Christmas morning. Not necessarily December 25th, by the way. But that Christmas morning, that morning that Jesus was born, that's when it all came about. That's when God stepped out of his amazing, rich heaven and took on human flesh, frail, 
went through suffering like none of us have ever experienced. And eventually the suffering of the cross, which was more than just the physical pain, church. It was the spiritual pain of him taking my sins upon himself. And all of that actually plays into this passage. Okay, so let's look at it. So the Bible says that he is going to come as a baby. And if we were to look in Matthew 1, Luke 2, we actually see that Christmas story. We see this child, and of course his star, and the shepherds, can't leave them out, right? And they, all of these people, play into this amazing plan, the set purpose of God. So the prophecies... Not just Isaiah's, but so many more. All the way back, we, you remember this past uh, Tuesday, we looked at one from Genesis chapter 3, from the garden. That this child of the woman would be born and he would crush the serpent's head. And, and it's not just talking about some literal serpent, he's talking about the head of Satan. Satan's plan to deceive and lead astray the entire human race. To be caught up in self and following him, Satan. And so we realize that when this child is born and this plan begins to be inaugurated and it begins to unfold, he, he becomes a king. Now all Jews knew that the Messiah would become king. They understood this. And this is one of the main passages, but there's literally... Scores of these passages throughout the Old Testament that promise a coming king. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. That government will rest on his shoulders, a sense of responsibility. This little baby would become king. So as we look through the Gospels, do we see anywhere where Jesus ascends, steps, and sits on a throne to become king? Well, see... Literally, we don't. And this is what threw the Jews. Who, who are you, Jesus? Because you know what? You're not winning any favor amongst the leaders. And as a matter of fact, as the story unfolds, you know, they crucified him. How is that a king? We need to find out. Because they were expecting a political ruler, and they got a spiritual king of a spiritual kingdom instead okay now don't get me wrong that does not mean that he's only figuratively a king no he is king but he's king of a spiritual kingdom that you just can't see with your eyes now for many people if you can't see something with your eyes then that must mean it doesn't exist how many of you look look straight in front of you how many see all those atoms in front of your face any of you see those if you do, come see me afterwards. I want to pray for you. But the truth is, you can't. Does that mean they don't exist? Well, of course they do, because science says, right? Well, I don't see a spiritual kingdom. Does that mean it doesn't exist? Well, no, because the Bible says, see, it's very real. It's very real. And so here is this Jesus, and he is born, and it says that he is going to receive four names. I want to look at those four names. I'm going to be a little brief, at least I think I am, but I'm going to be kind of brief and look at these four names. The first one is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. How many of you have ever had counseling in your life before? 
some of you don't want to admit you've had to have counseling in your life, right? Yeah. The truth is we all need counseling. But Jesus, in listen to this, Micah chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counselor perished? That pain seizes you like that of a woman in labor? What's he saying? He's saying that the king was their counselor. Many times a king stood at the gate and he would give counsel or judgment to people who would come in. Sometimes he would do it from his throne. But he would be a counselor. He would be one to settle disputes. This is the perfect picture of Jesus, especially as you move to Isaiah 11. It says he will... He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. There are seven things that it's said to come upon him. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Wisdom, understanding, and it says the spirit of counsel is one of them. Jesus will become this amazing counselor. He is the one that's going to speak truth to darkness. He's the one that I want to turn to in this book here to find wisdom. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It also says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Do you want knowledge? You want, I mean, real knowledge? You want real truth, real wisdom? You've got to start here. You've got to start with a relationship with God. And as he speaks to your spirit, he guides you with wonderful counsel. He is the wonderful counselor. Jesus Christ, as the child born in Bethlehem, would become the wonderful counselor. Many times, that counselor would be the king. But other times, the scriptures also use this very same word as far as counselor, to be the king's counselor. He would surround himself with wise men. Not smart, Alex. Just wise men. And he would seek their counsel. They would give counsel to the king. And so he would weigh them. We're talking about some pretty heavy-duty counsel here. This will be Jesus' job. He will be our guide. He is the wonderful counselor. He's said to be mighty God. Now, I have had over the years some Jehovah's Witness friends. In that particular group of, of people, they do not believe that Jesus is God. They say, how could the infinite God become finite? That does not make logical sense. I get that. The incarnation does not make logical sense. But just because something doesn't make logical sense doesn't mean that it is. Do you understand everything about God? Is there anything about God that you just don't understand? Any of anything? Well, of course there is. Does that mean, therefore, because it just doesn't sound logical, it isn't? No. Just because we don't understand it? And so God became, the infinite God be, became a finite man. He was still deity. He was still God. This plays such a huge part into Jesus' ministry. See, if Jesus was not God, and in this case, mighty God, who was he to in any way call Mike Curtis 
We're called Cole. We're called Pamela or Marla. What authority, what right does he have to say, hey, lay down your life for me? Believe in me. I want to be the most important person in your whole life. See, that is reserved for God alone. For us to give our devotion, our allegiance to anyone other, ultimately anyone other than God, is idolatry. For Jesus, if he was not God, to say, believe in me for everlasting life, who are you, Jesus? That's idolatry. Unless he truly is God. Just turn one page. Well, in my Bible, it's one page. Just turn to the chapter before this. I want us to see something here. If you have some Jehovah's Witnesses friends, see, it is so crucial to the message of the gospel that Jesus truly is God. Not just a created being, not just a really good person, but that he's God. He's infinite God. If you you were to look at this passage, chapter 8, you're there with me. Look at verse 13 and 14. Are you ready? It says in my Bible, the Lord Almighty. Literally in Hebrew, it's Yahweh Sabaoth. That is Yahweh, the the Lord of hosts. Of hosts. He is Yahweh. Hosts generally meaning his army. His spiritual army, his angels. So it says, the Lord, or Yahweh Almighty, is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. Who is he, church? It would be Yahweh Almighty, wouldn't it? He is the one you are to dread. Who is he? See, that would be Yahweh Almighty. He just talked about him in the very beginning of verse 13. And he will be a sanctuary. Who is he? See, again, it's Yahweh. For both, he will be a sanctuary But for both houses of Israel, he will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Church, who is he? It's got to be Yahweh Almighty. Do you see that? But you see, in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 8 and in Romans chapter 9 verse 33, two verses found in the New Testament, one by Peter, one by Paul, they both quote this passage And say, this is Jesus. He's the stone that causes men to stumble. He's the rock that makes them fall. Because Jesus didn't come to bring peace, he said, but a sword. He came to bring division. He came to be divisive. Does that shock you a little bit? Jesus came to be divisive. He came to say, in essence, I am God. I am here to set you free from your addiction to sin, to wash it away, and to give you a new life if you pledge your allegiance to me, if you surrender to me, if you believe in me. That's what believe means. And so, wow, he's actually going to walk on the face of the earth. This child will walk on the face of the earth. And people are going to be divided. You read through the book of John, it's everywhere. And John purposely focuses on this. Some believed this about him and some believed this about him. And they argued. Some wanted him crucified and some did not. And throughout the ages that has still been the case, Jesus brings division. 
People have different opinions about him. But let me just say, because truth is fact, that only one of them is right. They're, bo- not, they're not both right. Jesus truly is who he said he is in the Bible. He is Yahweh. He is the mighty God. This word mighty, as Isaiah uses it, is regularly just by itself, and therefore translated the mighty one. And we supply the word one. Another, he's the mighty one. He is God. He's the mighty one. And that word mighty is regularly throughout the Old Testament used for warriors, the mighty ones of Israel. That's the warriors, the mighty ones of heaven. See, there are, those are the warring angels. God, this mighty God is a warring God. Why? Because peace is at stake. Your peace, not your tranquility, but your peace with God. You are, we were all found in the kingdom of darkness, whether we realized we were Satan, excuse me, God's enemy or not. But because we were addicted to our sin, we fought with God. Whether we realized it or not, he was our enemy. We were the enemies of God. And that's why there's a battle here. When I gave my heart to Christ, I can't tell you about the spiritual battle that was that was beyond my understanding. All I know is that something happened in my heart. And I didn't just see things differently. I wanted things. My desires were different. Because my Curtis was different. If Jesus Christ has come into your life, the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, has come into your life, and you're no different than what you were before you met Christ, I have to wonder if you have truly been invaded by this amazing God and been truly born again. I'm not saying that we become perfect. I'm not suggesting that. But my Curtis was different. And we're going to discover that there's a difference when we believe in Jesus, when we choose to follow him. And so he is, he's, he's wonderful counselor, he's mighty God, he's everlasting father. Now some of us look at that and say, wait a second, theologically that's got to be wrong. He's only the son, he's not the father, right, in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But see, he's not talking about the Trinity there. He's not talking about his relationship to his father, he's talking about his relationship with us. The prophets in the Old Testament were many times called my father. Even kings, and you can read this. Kings of Israel called Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament. They refer to him as my father, out of respect. Throughout Isaiah, God, Yahweh, is called father. In chapter 64, Verse 8, this is what it says. Yet, O Yahweh, or O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay, you are the potter, we are all the work of your hands. You see, the father gives birth to the son. God, the creator, created all of us with the intention that we become his sons and daughters. And then he relates this idea of being a father, the one who is the source then of life, that he is called the potter. He's the one that begins to shape and mold us as a father should be shaping and molding his own son. 
remember when my son was under my roof. When my, uh, I, part, part of my job as a dad to both my daughters and my sons was to give them instruction, to help them grow, not just feed them knowledge of the word. Actually, I, I made a choice. I'm going to focus on the wisdom. So we didn't get into a lot of theology. That kind of came here and there. I wanted to focus on life principles, and so my job was to train them. At age 12, my wife took very seriously then discipling the, our daughter. And we had four daughters, so it was a little bit more on her shoulders, and we had one son. And at age 12, then it was my job to help mold, if you will, my son and try and build in him character qualities. So that, See, that's what a job does. That, excuse me, that's what a, a father does. His job is to help mold his children to impact the world. That's my job description, at least part of it. And so it, Jesus is our everlasting father. It's interesting, nowhere else does it call angels everlasting? Any created creature everlasting. Because the Bible uses everlasting, it means this. It means from everlasting to everlasting. See, Mike Curtis had a beginning point. I was born. I, was, I didn't exist beforehand. My spirit wasn't alive beforehand. On July 4th, 1961, Mike Curtis was born. I'm sure I was a pain in the neck. I'm sure I cried a lot and demanded a lot from my mom. But you know what? The Bible says because I've inherited eternal life, I will live forever. I will be everlasting in that, in that sense. But I am not from everlasting to everlasting because I have the beginning. This one, the everlasting father, as the Bible uses this term in the Old Testament, it means from everlasting, no beginning, to everlasting, no end. Only God fits that description. And he is a father to us all then as he would seek to mold us as a potter molds his pie. So if you're going through a really hard time in your life right now, instead of shaking your fist at the potter, understand this idea of him being a father. Throughout scripture, it, it speaks of fathers having compassion on their sons. See, this isn't just some God saying, well, you know what? Just rub some dirt in it, right? You hurt? Rub some dirt in it. You know, stop crying. You little baby, you. That, that's not the, the father's heart. See, he's a compassionate father who molds and shapes. When you're going through hurt, the father's heart hurts for you. He's not compassionless. He's filled with compassion. Compassionful? Is that a word? That he has infinite compassion for. So when we're going through hard times, yes, he, as the potter, he's shaping us. But see, he's a compassionate potter. Because that's the nature of a father. Maybe, maybe that's not the nature of your father, your earthly father. And I'm sorry about that, if that's the case. But our God, see, he's a compassionate who loves us so amazingly. That, see, when my kids, especially when they were little, and there's just something about little kids, they're so vulnerable that you protect them at every turn. You know, don't go near that stove. 
that you're within five feet of that stove, get away, right? Because the stove is on, right? You were just sometimes overly protective. You see, that's the heart of the Father. He wants so much to protect you. So if you're going through a struggle today, realize this, that the very default nature of God to protect you realizes something that you going through this hard time, even though it hurts, God realizes that is the best way for you to grow in this area, whatever that area is in your life. And God is doing, okay, I, 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 my heart aches for them. But they're going to miss out on so much. See, if they get this hurt, right, if they go through this well, if they consider it pure joy when they face trials of many kinds, we went through James chapter 1 on this, if they can just get that and their hearts can be inclined to me, they can go through it well. Look what I have in store for them. Oh, my goodness. It's like Mike Curtis crawling to the back of the Christmas tree and discovering this huge gift of his. He can hardly wait to open it. That's the gift he's trying to give you as you walk through the fire. As you walk through the raging river, he says you will not be swept away. You walk through the fire, you will not be burned. Can you trust me in this? And so he is this compassionate, everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. Are you aware that in Luke chapter 2, in Luke chapter 2, there, here's another Hallmark greeting card, quote, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, are you ready for this? Glory to God in the highest on earth, peace, goodwill on whom his favor rests. That's technically how the Greek reads there. Not just favor on all, but favor, but grace or peace rather on those on whom his goodwill or his favor rests and so when we read through that we say oh that's interesting what does this have to do with prince of peace mike remember i said peace has to do with battle and warfare we conquer to bring peace or god does there's a battle right here did you did you see it when i read it did you see the word battle in it? did you see did you see warfare in there anywhere it's there because actually, in my Bible, it says suddenly a great company of the heavenly host was there. And this, this word for, um, this word for company is the word, or excuse me, this word for host in the Greek is strategos, which is regularly translated in the New Testament as army. There's a company, there is an army of God's angels right there at Jesus' birth. And so, and, and, and there's so much more, of course, that we could get into that, and I'm not going to, but even when Jesus was born, this idea of peace to men on whom God's favor would rest was wrapped up in this message of warring angels declaring now, it's, he goes on and it says, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. There will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it from that time on and forever. Of the increase of his government, of his rulership. And by the word, that word 
prince there, prince of peace, is rarely translated prince in Hebrew. It's generally translated ruler. I just don't want you to get this idea of prince who's kind of under a king. That's not the idea that's conveyed here, okay? He is the ruler of prince, uh, excuse me, the ruler of peace. And the only reason why it's translated prince in almost every version is because so many, th- this verse has become so popular during the Christmas season, we regularly, he's the prince of peace. Even the world has heard this verse, church. He's the prince of peace. So you go translating it ruler of peace, people are going to throw them. So anyway, I'm just simply saying, this is the ruler. And he's ruling over his government. His government is his kingdom, the kingdom of God. And it says that the expansion of his kingdom, there will be no end. The expansion and growth of his kingdom and his peace, constantly conquering to bring peace, there's not going to be any end. Now, this, of course, I believe, has to do with two things. Number one, I think we can see there's the expansion of God's kingdom throughout time. I I read in a Facebook post, uh, a Christian said, and I know this guy. He just declared with an exclamation mark, Christianity is collapsing. And I understood his heart cry, but I graciously said, "Can, can can I just graciously disagree with you? Because the Bible says, right here in Isaiah 9, it says of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Christianity is not collapsing in America. Nominal Christianity is collapsing because it has no foundation. Nominal Christianity that does not understand the gospel and who Jesus is, who this son is, that's collapsing because it doesn't work. But you know what? Of the increase of his government is not just talking about the spiritual expansion in this world. More and more people becoming Christians. I want to ask you this. I believe it, it applies on this level as well. Is Jesus' rulership in your heart increasing? Is it increasing? Is it expanding? Is it growing? Or have you made the mistake of, of many Christians and your life spiritually has just stagnated? If anything, it's regressed. And you're taking steps back. Because the challenge from this passage is let the the kingship of Jesus, let his rulership in your life continue to expand and grow. Let him take over every area of your life. That's his right as your king. He has the right to invade every area, every interest, every aspect, every desire in your life. That is to be surrendered to his lordship, his kingship. Now, for this to continue to increase, it's not just a matter of, well, I've got to just obey more. I've got to just do more for God's kingdom. And that's, that, I don't believe that's what he's talking about. That, that's something that will come, I suppose. But what he's really talking about is this idea, this idea of peace and expansion, expanding. This idea of peace is reconciliation with God. Reconciliation isn't about doing good works doing more good works, it's relational in its heart. So for God's government and peace to be increasing in Mike Curtis's heart, it simply means this, that Jesus Christ is capturing my affections more and more 
each day, each week, each month, each year, since I was age 14. This doesn't mean that there were times in which I slowed down or maybe stagnated a bit, going through a hard time and just wondering, God, where are you? And I just kind of sat there on my back haunches, and I didn't grow for some time. But when you get up off your haunches and you start realizing, this is an amazing God. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. He's an everlasting father. He's the prince or the ruler of peace. This is who he truly is. The man, it stirs up affection for us. Let me just give you an illustration about this concept of increasing in our relationship with God. On occasion, you come to my house, and it's probably happening more than at other times. You may find us watching a Hallmark romance, Christmas romance movie. You just might. Now, here's something that I've discovered in Hallmark movies. It's like they're all the same. <laughs> all of them are the same. You can guess the story within 60 seconds of when it starts, right? You can figure out who's going to fall in love with whom, you're going to find, you're going to, within maybe five minutes, what it is that's going to potentially break them up. Because in all Hallmark romance movies, there's a possibility of them breaking up. And you're wondering, oh my goodness, are they going to break up? I hope they don't, right? And you're just wondering, it's a cliffhanger, guys. Okay, maybe not. But the truth is, they begin to fall in love with each other as they get to know each other. When this woman realizes what a giving, caring, compassionate guy this guy is awesome. My goodness, I've got to marry him, right? The guy is thinking she's not just a really beautiful girl, right? But, wow, she's really sweet. She really knows how to put up with me. You know, and they begin to discover things about each other and they fall for each other. So what does the Hallmark Christmas romance have to do with the increase of his government? It is all about getting to know the other person. You cannot vicariously build a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can't. You can't just have someone tell you the truth about him. You yourself have to build that relationship with him. You yourself have to discover how compassionate that father is. You have to realize the kind of peace and reconciliation we deserve punishment, but Jesus took the punishment for me. See, that is love. The sacrifice, the giving of himself, I didn't deserve that. When a guy begins to reveal that he really understands this idea of sacrifice and he gives himself so completely and sacrifices so much for the woman, oh my goodness, guys, you want to win a girl's heart? You learn to be a sacrificer. You learn to lay your life down and consider her the most important person in your life. She's going to fall for you at, well, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit, but the truth, you get the idea. So, can I just ask you, instead of learning about Jesus vicariously, 
instead of just learning about them because I'm preaching or teaching or sharing life experiences with you to learn about them, how about if you experience this mighty God, this wonderful counselor, this everlasting father, this ruler of peace? You experience him. Can I just tell you where you're going to experience him? By far, if your world is caving around you, when you begin to realize how fragile life is, and you come to that place, you're just wondering what's going to happen next. When you come to that point and you lean in on this God here, this wonderful counselor, when you do that, and he begins to share with you truth about how to walk through the fire, how to walk through the raging river and not be swept away. And when you start listening to him and relying upon him, and then you begin to be that mighty God, that warrior God, step into your life. You see, the reason why so many people don't understand what I just shared, what Christians don't understand that is because they have been spoon-fed their Christianity all of their life. And when they go through hard times, how can you, God? The pastor told me that you're a good, compassionate God. Where are you now? And they just don't get it. You've got to go through the fire sometimes. I get it. Let's pray that we don't have to go through the fire, but sometimes you're going to have to. But let me just tell you this, that all things work together for the good of those who love him. God's going to see you through this. And it's where the rubber meets the road. It's right there. When you're at your weakest, that God says, let me just show you right now how strong I am. Let me pull you up. I'm not going to pull you out of the fire. I'm sorry, but there's a little bit more pain left to go. but I need you to go through this and I will be your strength. I love the poem Footprints where the guy realizes there was one set of footprints in my life, in, in this dream, in the sand. And, and God, I don't get it. They were the hardest times in my life. Why just one set? Why would you leave me? And, and God says, what do, you, what do you mean I left you? There's one set of footprints because those were the times I carried you. When Jesus carries you, see, that's where we begin to fall in love with him more and more. He's more than just truths. As important as these truths are, you get to experience them with this mighty God, this warrior, as we cry out to him. And maybe he doesn't answer your prayers just like you wanted him to. Do we do this? Or would you say, you know what, God? I just surrender to you and to your purposes. You know best. I don't get this. I don't even like this. But you know what? I am not going to turn my back on you. You're my savior. You're the God that came into my life and changed me. And we again just surrender to him. Because that's what faith is all about. Maybe that's what you're going through right now. And God is trying to increase his government and peace in your life right now. Are you going to let him? Or are you going to... God, please... Surrender to him right now. Surrender to him. There's so much more in this passage, just as far as his justice and his righteousness. The very fact that 
his justice. See, you know what justice is? Justice is Mike Curtis going to hell. See, that's justice. He wants to establish that, and he wants to, what does he say? Uphold it. And he did that at the cross. Where Isaiah himself tells us in chapter 53, that's when he took the punishment that I deserved, and he put it upon his son. Justice satisfied. Righteousness. Do you realize that Jesus Christ, when I believed in him, actually imparted his righteousness to me? It, I, I don't stand righteous before God the moment I believe. I've not done any righteousness. I don't stand righteous before him because of all the good things I've done. I haven't. I stand righteous because the son of righteousness now lives in me. And if the son of righteousness lives in you, guess what your life is going to look like? It's going to start looking righteous. The Bible says the old Mike Curtis is gone, the new has come. The old man has been done away with. He died on the battlefield. The new man has come alive. The Bible even talks about putting on the new man. See, the old man, new, that's the lifestyle. The old Mike Curtis, he's dead. The new Mike Curtis in Christ with the son of righteousness in me, see, I'm a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. See, my friend, if the old has not gone in your life, I'm wondering if the new really has come. If the old is still there and you, there's no difference in your life, I have to wonder, hey, have you been transformed? Has Jesus really taken upon himself your punishment? Because that only happens when you truly believe. Not just believe he exists, because Satan believes that. Not just believe that he died for the sins of the world. See, Satan discovered that, for, unfortunately for him, too late. I'm sure he didn't have Jesus crucified knowing that he would pay for the, all the penalty of our sins. You know, he wouldn't have crucified him in that case. But here he is, and he died for my sins. And I'm called to now surrender to him, believe in him. And when that happens, God promises me his justice been established and i don't get that punishment jesus did his righteousness now lives in me and it causes me new desires to obey and do what's right i'm no longer a slave i'm now a slave to what romans 6 righteousness and that's i, I have a new desire to do what's right and good without god's help i can't but now god lives in me and see i can and so my life is transformed and I just have to ask, church, if our lives have never been transformed, I have to wonder, what type of faith do we really have? Is it even genuine? Now, I'm not casting doubt on anyone's salvation tonight. I'm not doing that. I want to challenge us. He is here to establish and to uphold justice and righteousness. He is here to see his kingdom increase. That's why Jesus came. That's why he was born. He had a goal. The goal wasn't just simply to be born. It wasn't for people to set up really beautiful Christmas trees and decorate them. Don't get me wrong. We have a great time doing that every Christmas season. And I actually do like unwrapping presents. And if you want to know what to get me, just come see me afterwards. Just kidding. The truth is, though, Christmas is about this baby being born. And he had a purpose. He had a goal. may not have known it when he was born. That purpose was unfolded, and he went to the cross. He was raised from the dead so that his kingdom 
the day-by-day increase in your life. Every day, surrender to his lordship. That's what his purpose says. Can you stand with me? Scripture says, why would a man look in a mirror and see that there's his hair and it's unkempt and maybe his teeth haven't been brushed? Maybe his shirt's not buttoned right. How silly for him to walk away and do nothing about that. And so I always invite us at the end of a message, after hearing what God's word has to say to our souls, what are you going to do about it? We've now looked into the word of God. We've looked into this mirror. What have you seen? I hope you've seen Jesus, this attractive man. He'll put to shame any guy on the Hallmark Christmas movie. He is... I was going to say he's super good looking, but that just sounds a bit weird. But the truth is, there's so much about him that is attractive, that draws us to him, that wins our heart. Is he winning your heart today? Let's pray about that. Father, I just ask you, we, we invite you to step inside our struggles, our day to day life, and increase your lordship in our hearts. Win them every day. Allow us to experience these truths that we've talked about this evening. Not just know about them intellectually, but to walk them out. To see see who you are as the wonderful counselor the one we can lean on, to see who you are as the mighty warrior God, to see you as the everlasting father full of compassion and ruler of peace that brings me into relationship with God the Father. Increase that, God, now. Let that person, Jesus Christ, increase in my life. Would you do that, Father? Father, if there's anyone here who has strayed from you, Call them back. Go beyond Mike Curtis's words. Spirit of God, you call. You draw them to yourself, God. Let something happen in their hearts tonight that causes them to surrender and say, God, I need you. I am desperate for you. And to lean on you more than ever before. That's where you want us, God. Every single one of us leaning on you. Do that, God. Do that right now, I pray. Surrendered in Jesus' name.